If you turn with me to Hebrews 8, we'll be reading from there. I want to be really clear. I've had the question asked of me, when will we get into the historical issues? And I just want to say this. And so we're really clear. Just because the church practiced something, the majority of its history doesn't make it biblically right. And just because the church explained their practice incorrectly for the majority of history doesn't make it the practice wrong. The fact is, history is descriptive of what happened. But history is not the authority we have for what we are to believe and practice. And so I want to make the case from the Bible, not from historical events. With that said, let me read Hebrews chapter 8. We'll start in verse 6. We'll read to verse 13, and then I'll pray. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we... Consider this one of the great New Covenant passages of Scripture. As the author to Hebrews reflects upon the implications of the New Covenant having come into history in the Christ, in his incarnation, in life, and in the cutting of it at his death. We pray that as we consider that covenant, that covenant prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, even promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, we pray that we would understand what you are saying in your word. They would understand why the new covenant is better, what is better about it, that we might exalt Christ in the midst of it. May your spirit give us understanding and protect us from error. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I provided my argument for baptizing believers and their children in a kind of nutshell, in a short syllogism. And I want you to hear that syllogism again. I will bring it up every week. Here's the syllogism. Premise one. All those who are members of the New Covenant people or to receive the covenant sign of baptism. All those who are members of the new covenant people ought to receive the covenant sign of baptism. That first premise is agreed upon by Baptists and Presbyterian and Reformed. Nobody disagrees with that. Premise two. Premise two. Believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. Believers and their children are members of the New Covenant people. That is the point of disagreement between Baptists and the Presbyterian and Reformed. They disagree not with whether believers are members of the New Covenant, but whether believers and their children are members of the New Covenant people. Conclusion. If both of my premises are true, 
then if both of my premises are true, and my burden is to prove the second premise, then it follows that believers and their children are to receive the covenant sign of baptism. Because Baptists do not believe my second premise, that the children of believers are members of the new covenant people, they reject my conclusion. And they ought to, if that second premise is untrue. The Baptists generally, and I want you to hear this because last week I made a, an argument for one substantial covenant. The Baptists generally, when I say generally, I don't mean all of them. I mean the majority report of the original Reformed Baptists, the guys who wrote the 1689 Confession. They generally do not believe, do not believe that the new covenant is substantially the same as prior covenants. They do not believe that. They believe its newness, its newness makes it radically distinct. And when I say radically, I don't mean like we're all excited. I'm radically at its root. It's radix at its root. Distinct from prior covenants. The Reformed Baptists hold that those prior covenants reveal the new covenant. They reveal the new covenant, but they are not administrations of one covenant of grace. Now, I was never actually, just so you know, I was never in that Reformed Baptist camp. That was actually never the position I took. I was among the very few Baptists, and I mean very few in a historical sense. I was among the very few Baptists who would argue that the new covenant is substantially the same as the prior covenants, but due to being in a kind of new eschatological moment, the latter days as opposed to the former days. I believe that the covenant parties had changed in the new covenant so that it wasn't, although I would say it's believers and their children all the way through the Old Testament covenants, it wasn't anymore in the new covenant. That was the view I took. In this way, I was arguing for a change in covenant people when we get to the new covenant. As I said last week, this whole debate is found right here. The whole debate's about God's covenant Is there one substantial covenant in different administrations or not? And about God's people. Are God's covenant people always believers in their children or not? That's really the debate. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. This is question and answer 74. Should infants also be baptized? Listen to the first part of their answer. Yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. In God's covenant and people. So the question is, is that true? Is that true? Even if that was true in the Old Testament, is that true in the New Covenant? Last week I began my argument by stating that we believe, we, meaning the elders, believe, there is one covenant promise. And then we looked at that one covenant promise in every biblical covenant and how it took shape. My simple contention is that every biblical covenant promises the same substance. Every biblical covenant promises the same what, or maybe I should say who. And what is that one substance? Christ and his benefits. Christ and all that you receive in him. I do not mean that every biblical covenant merely reveals Christ and his benefits, like pointing forward only. I also mean that Christ and his benefits are what every biblical covenant fundamentally offers to the people in them. Christ is the promise in every biblical covenant. He's the object of faith in every biblical covenant. The grace of Christ is being administered. And all the word I keep getting asked, what is administering? To minister. That's it. Add to minister. Okay, to minister. It's being ministered in every biblical covenant. Every biblical covenant is both revealing and offering Christ. That's my contention. But I also said that the one covenant promise is administered differently throughout the biblical covenants. It's administered differently. It looks different as it takes shape, as the outline is drawn and colored in more clearly until you get to Christ. And I said that this week I would really get into the question of how that form is different in the New Covenant. How that form is different in the New Covenant. Now, it may be important to briefly define a couple words like administer. 
Administer means to minister. What does minister mean? That's fine. Great, to minister. So what does to minister mean? It means to serve or to apply or to dispense. Like the doctor administered the medicine. He dispensed it. He applied it. Right? That's what we mean. What I'm saying is that Christ and his benefits are being administered, applied, dispensed in and through every biblical covenant. Now listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith states this. Westminster Confession 7.5. This covenant, in other words, this covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law, that's speaking of Moses, and in the time of the gospel, that's speaking of Jesus. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were, those things were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious, powerful, through the operation of the Spirit, to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Now, how could Christ be administered in and through those Old Testament promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, paschal lamb, you know, the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances? How could he be administered in and through those? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith deals with that in the next chapter, chapter 8, paragraph 6. Listen to what they say. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ, and done, accomplished by Christ, worked by Christ, until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, power, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect. Now, communicated means more than announced. They commune with. Under the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world. How? In and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. So what I'm arguing is that there's one covenant promise or substance and distinct covenant forms in every biblical covenant. And those forms slowly reveal and develop that promise. Think of the Old Testament pictures as shadowy versions of Christ. Shadowy versions of Christ. And then the outline of the Christ grows more and more clear until he comes. You might go, oh, that sounds like, to borrow a term I make fun of my wife for using, sounds like highfalutin language, right? Listen, this is biblical language. For example, look up at, well, just look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1 of Hebrews. For since the law, speaking here about Moses' law, the old covenant, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, now notice, instead of what? The true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law has a shadowy form of those realities, but not the true form of those realities. It's the same set of realities, friends. It's the same substantive set of realities, but two different forms, a shadowy form and a true form. You're going to see that as we go along. This is the same kind of thing that comes up, just so you know. Look at Hebrews 8 and verse 5. He was talking about being in the temple with the high priest and the holy of holies. And look, they, those priests in the old covenant, in Moses' covenant, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Hebrews 9, it uses the word of antitupos. This is the type 
and the antitype. There's a true form of these realities, a substance, and then there are shadowy types of them. That's not language that we just think is fun to use. It's language that comes right out of the Bible. Even the word administration, that Moses' was an administration, oikonomios, it's a, an economy. That word translates to administration, that Moses saw in Christ's house. Notice, these are all words that we just get from the Bible. I'm not making them up. So think of the Old Testament as shadowy versions of the Christ. That's what I'm contending. And the outline of the Christ grows more and more clear until he comes. But each stage of that development looks a little different. Like the development of a zygote at conception, if you think about, I see Michael right now. So at one point, Michael was a zygote, right, at conception. A fertilized egg in his mother's uterus. He attached to the uterine wall, and he developed, right? And then he was born. And he went through his infancy and toddlerhood, and then his childhood, and then his growth stopped early in childhood, and he became a fully formed man, right? (laughs) But you take Michael, and you look at him and say, but if you go back, that zygote, that infant, that child, and that full-grown man do not look exactly the same, but if you look probably at his baby pictures, you see resemblances of who he is now, and in all stages, it's the same Man, the same man. And what I'm saying is that every biblical covenant, starting in Genesis 3.15, which is, if you will, Christ as zygote, begins to fill out the picture until you have the fully formed, mature man when he comes incarnate. I borrow that language from Paul, by the way, in Galatians 3. Israel is the son of God in its childhood it's immaturity and then the heir comes the mature true israel comes yet this begs a question for all serious bible readers look at hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 if i'm contending this it begs a question verse 6 but as it is christ has obtained a ministry That is as much more excellent than the old, that's the old covenant, as the covenant, the new covenant, he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Here's the question. How has the new covenant changed things? What is new in the new covenant? If I'm contending all this, what's new in the new covenant? New with regard to what? How is the new covenant ministry of Christ much more excellent than the ministry of the old covenant ministry of Moses? How is the new covenant enacted on better promises? I say that, and yet I say there's one promise. So how is it enacted on better promises? What is the first covenant, and how was the first covenant faulty? Look down at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That first covenant, by the way, is clearly Moses in the context, the old covenant. How is the first covenant faulty? God gave a faulty covenant? How is the new covenant not like the old covenant? Look at verse 9. He's going to make a new covenant. Now look at verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That is, by the way, the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. How is it not like that? How did Israel not continue in? Verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. How did they not continue in, or in the language of Jeremiah 31, break? The old covenant. Not continuing is another way of saying they broke it. How'd they break it? What does it mean that the old covenant became obsolete? Look at verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant became obsolete. These are the kinds of questions that have to be answered. You have to take this text seriously. You can't just, you know 
come in with your magic wand of theology that you had beforehand and then go and read it into the text. And isn't that convenient? You have to demonstrate it in the text. So I want to walk through the passage briefly and attempt to answer these questions. I want to employ Hebrews 8, 6 as a kind of summary to our central contention today. Hebrews 8, 6 is a kind of summary. Notice what it says again. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Here's what I want to say. The new covenant is better in three regards. It's better in its ministry, it's better in its mediator, and it's better in its promises. Better in its ministry, its mediator, and its promises. Do you guys hear those three things? They're right there in the text. It's better in its ministry, it's better in its mediator, it's better in its promises. All there in eight, verse 6. So let's look at those three. Christ has obtained a much more excellent ministry than Moses. Much more excellent ministry than Moses. Now, I'm just going to run through Hebrews. I'm not going to have you turn to all these passages. But I just want you to hear it. You were with me, with most of you, in Hebrews for quite some time. So this won't surprise you. How is it better in its ministry? Jesus spoke the final word. The better word than the Old Testament promises, prophets. The word that only the Son of God could speak because he is the word. Moses was merely a servant of the word. Jesus is the creator, the heir, the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Moses is merely a servant of the Lord. Jesus made a full atoning satisfaction for sin. Moses merely had human priests and animal sacrifices that signified the atoning work to come. Jesus sanctified the people of God internally. Moses merely served an administration that cleansed the body, sanctifying the flesh. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil and freed us from lifelong slavery to fear of death. Moses is the servant who merely told us that we were in slavery to Satan's sin and death. Jesus is the son, the heir, the builder of the house that is the church. Moses is merely a household servant who watched over the children until the heir came. Right now I'm in Hebrews 3 with a couple dips into further parts of Hebrews. Jesus is the Sabbath rest God's people strive to enter. Moses merely told them about the sign of that Sabbath rest. Jesus is the great high priest who passed through the heavens, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who brings us to the throne of grace. Moses and his priests could only pass through an earthly temple veil, and that only once a year, and could never bring us to the throne of grace. Jesus is the eternal priest king, who conquered death through his indestructible life, who never sinned, who perfectly obeyed, who sympathizes with his people, who guaranteed a better covenant, who saves to the uttermost, who entered the Holy of Holies in heaven, who ever intercedes for us and leads us behind the veil to God's glorious presence with him. Moses, Moses' priesthood, could only give us a small imperfect, incomplete, temporal, shadowy taste of that. Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle was an earthly tent that served as a mere copy. Jesus offered the true atoning sacrifice, putting away sin forever. Moses offered the blood of bulls and goats that could not atone for sin, that had to be repeated continually. Jesus has ushered in the new age, the latter days, the new creation. And he's brought us to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And Jesus gave us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Moses was a covenant of the old fallen creation of the former days that gave an earthly city, one that fell 
due to sin. Jesus did all of that in his incarnation, life, sin-atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus has a much more excellent ministry. You hear it there? I just scanned through Hebrews. And Jesus has a much better ministry because Jesus Christ is a much more excellent mediator. He's a more excellent mediator. That's what we're told in 8.6. Jesus is the better prophet. When I talk about mediator, we're really starting to talk about the threefold office of mediator or the office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the better prophet. Acts chapter 3 picks that up from Deuteronomy chapter 18, incidentally. But he's the better prophet who brings in the full light of revelation and clears up our ignorance. They brought in some shadowy reflections. He brings in the full light of revelation. Jesus is the better priest who reconciles us to God and presents us as holy and acceptable before him. Whoever intercedes for us, who finished his work and sat down. Jesus is the better king who rescues us from our spiritual enemies of Satan, sin, and death and who convinces, subdues, draws, upholds, delivers, and preserves us to his heavenly kingdom. So, Jesus is a better mediator with a better ministry. And finally, he's a better mediator with a better ministry because Jesus enacted a new covenant with better promises. What does Hebrews mean by better promises? It's because if you look at the end of verse 6, since it is enacted on better promises. What does it mean by better promises? Well, to understand that, we're going to look at verse 7 and following and see what the contrast is. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the covenant made at Sinai, Exodus 19 to 24. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Note that the first covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant, was faulty. Thus, we need a second covenant, a new covenant. The new covenant is new in contrast to the old covenant. You see how that works? That's the old covenant. This is the new one. I bought, I had an old shirt. I bought a new one. Okay, that's, it's new in contrast to the old. We needed a new covenant because the old covenant was faulty. But what was the faultiness of the old covenant? Look with me at verse 8 and 9. For he finds fault with them, the people. He finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 and following here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. They broke it. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. First, we learn that the faultiness of the old covenant, interestingly enough, is a faultiness in man, in those who received it. For he finds fault with them when he says. Second, we learn that this old Mosaic covenant was broken. They did not continue in my covenant, and that's why the Lord is making a new covenant. He's doing so because they broke the old covenant. Now, by breaking, we don't mean the old covenant came to an end. We mean they violated it. They transgressed it. That's why the Lord's making a new covenant, because they broke the old covenant. And so he brought judgment upon them. Look what it says. And so I showed no concern for them. That's a summary phrase of God's judgment of the exile of Israel from the land, the destruction of the city and the temple and the ending of the royal kings, if you will, the line of kings and the going into Babylonian captivity. And this new covenant will not be like the old Mosaic covenant. God graciously brought them out of Egypt and made a covenant with them at Sinai and they did not believe him. 
and they did not obey him. They did not listen to the voice of God as he kindly spoke to them, as he made promises to them, and as he gave them commands. So they fell in the wilderness, if you remember. So they were under God's judgment. And we see cycles of judgment until the final exile. But we still do not know, and this is what I'm going to beg now, we still do not know what makes the promises of the new covenant better than the promises of the old covenant. What do we mean they're better promises? What makes them better? We know it has to do with the faultiness of the old covenant. We know that which is related somehow to the fault in the people that led to them breaking it. Are you guys tracking with me so far? What makes the new covenant promises better than the old covenant? Look at Hebrews 8.10. For, here comes your explanation. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's the first way in which the new covenant is better than that old Mosaic covenant. God will write his law on their hearts, on their hearts. The old covenant law was written on tablets of stone. Now I'll write it on their hearts. The old covenant law, please understand this, was not able, was not able to secure the faithfulness of God's covenant bride. They broke my covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Was not able to secure the faithfulness of God's covenant bride. But the new covenant is able to secure the faithfulness of God's covenant bride. The old covenant was faulty in that it gave us a holy law, but it did not make us a holy people. It told us what the holy requirement of the law is, but it did not conform our hearts to it. Indeed, the old covenant could not do that. Only the Holy Spirit, graciously giving us new birth in Christ, can cause us to walk in godliness. That's why Ezekiel 36 says, I'll put a new spirit in you and sprinkle clean water on you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my laws. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Only the Holy Spirit graciously giving us new birth in Christ can cause us to walk in godliness. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. You hear the problem of the law is? Us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Only the Christ can keep the righteous requirement of the law. And only the Holy Spirit can write the law of God on our hearts and declare us in Christ through union with him as righteous law keepers. So how are the new covenant promises better? Notice the new covenant promises are not better with regard to the matter of them or what they are that are better with regard to the manner in which they're being administered. The matter is the same. God Covenants the law on tablets of stone. God covenants the law on your heart. The laws don't change. The manner in which God gives them in the two respective covenants changes. On tablets of stone or on your heart. The old covenant commanded the law, but wrote it on tablets of stone. The Old Covenant promised the law, but it never promised the power to keep it. Formally, anyway. The New Covenant commands the law as well, but promises to write it on our hearts by the Spirit. The New Covenant promised the keeping of the law. That is why the problem with the Old Covenant promise actually lies with us. 
That's why God finds fault with them. The law is holy and righteous and pure. But in God's wisdom, in God's wisdom, he gave Israel a perfect law in the covenant with Moses at Sinai, the old covenant, a law that was not able to change their hearts in order to show them and to show us our need for Christ and his spirit. It's what Paul calls the pedagogical use of the law in Galatians 3. It was a tutor that taught us about our need. Please don't miss this. This new covenant promise is not better as to substance, but as to administration. And the administration is better because Christ is the administrator. We are still given God's law, but rather than it being externally on tablets of stone, it's written internally on the heart. Further, look at the last phrase of Hebrews 8.10. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's not new. That's not a new promise. It's the same. The law is not new. It's the same. The manner in which God gives it is new in this covenant. That promise of I will be their God, they shall be my people, not new. It's the same. The Old Testament could reveal and offer God with us, but only in the new covenant do we see the yes and amen to those promises. For Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He dwells in us by the Spirit and brings us to the Father. That's how it's better. You don't just have a promise, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. In a covenant, for example, at Sinai, you have the one who God dwells in walking among you in the new covenant. He dwells in us by the spirit and brings us to the father. Now look at Hebrews 8.11. We'll continue on in this. They shall not, they shall not teach each other saying, know the Lord. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. And nobody disagrees on this, actually, just so you we're clear. It does not mean that there will be no teachers in the New Covenant Church. doesn't mean that. We clearly have teachers in the New Covenant Church. We're given them by Christ in Ephesians 4, 7 through 11, and they're there to encourage us to maturity. Yet there is a way in which we do not need a teacher. There is a way in which we do not need a teacher. We do not need the old covenant, prophets, priests, and king, tabernacle and temple, external washings and sacrifices. We no longer need all of that because the Lord himself has come as our teacher. You don't need an Aaronic priest, a Davidic king, or a prophet like Zechariah when the one who is the prophet, priest, and king stands among you. And teaches. He came as the incarnate son. Revealing the father. And he sent the Holy Spirit. Who teaches us internally. And in a more powerful manner. John 14 through 16. Go read that. As the word is proclaimed. The Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ. He teaches us internally. As was promised in Isaiah 54 13. All your children, this is a new covenant promise, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. See, the Father draws us to Christ by the Spirit. And that text is not only being picked up in Jeremiah 31 of Isaiah 54, 13. That text is being picked up by Jesus in John 6, 45. When he says, it is written in the prophets. He's going to quote Isaiah 54, 13. And they will all be taught by God. Now listen how he's going to explain that. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That internal teaching of the Holy Spirit cannot be improved upon. This is confirmed when Jeremiah applies it to why we do not need any more external teachers. Listen to verse 11. For they shall all know me. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What I'm telling you is this is the promise of the Christ incarnate who walks among us and reveals the Father and his glory and of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost who spreads the knowledge of God across the face of the earth. 
They shall all know the Lord because the Father is the teacher by the Spirit, drawing them to Christ, John 6. And Christ teaches them of the Father by the Spirit, revealing him to them, Matthew 11. And if we're in Christ, then we know the Lord. If we're in Christ through faith, we know the Lord. Now, this does not mean that every individual, so I'm going to get to this a lot next week and the week after. This does not mean that every individual in the New Covenant, without exception, is a born-again believer. Rather, this is prophetic hyperbole. This is prophetic hyperbole. You guys know what prophetic hyperbole is. You probably use it. Everyone is going to be there. You're prophesying about a future event. And you're being hyperbolic, saying everyone will be at that future event. This does not mean that every individual in the New Covenant Church, without exception, will be a born-again believer. How do I know that? Look at Jeremiah 44. This is a quotation of Jeremiah 31. I will show you one example in Jeremiah, though there is more than one example in Jeremiah, which I could give you as a parallel. But let's look at Jeremiah 44, because if we're going to read Jeremiah in accord with his own literature or writing, then we need to see how he uses this language in other places. He doesn't just say, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, all from the least to the greatest in one location, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. He says that in a couple other places, Jeremiah 6, and we'll look at Jeremiah 44. Jeremiah 44 and verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off. Now notice all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who set their faces to come to the land of Egypt, which is an act of treason for somebody from Judah to set their face to go to Egypt. You guys understand why that would be. I will set their face to go to Egypt to live and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt, they shall fall. By the sword and by famine, they shall be consumed. From the least to the greatest, they shall die by the sword and by famine, and they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who've come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape. Not one, all, everyone shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. Do you guys notice that? They shall not return except for some of them. All from the least to the greatest shall not return. I'll strike them all down except for some of them. All from the least to the greatest does not mean every person without exception. Rather, it means all persons of every station. Least to great and nation, Jew and Gentile. I don't have time to get into this, but you already understand prophetic hyperbole. You know why I know that? Because you're not Pentecostals. You say, what do you mean? For example... Think of when Joel 2 is quoted in Acts 2 at Pentecost. You know that's prophetic hyperbole. And in the last days, Acts chapter 2, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Does that mean there's universal spiritual indwelling among every human being without exception? On all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Do your young men and young women all prophesy and have visions and dreams? How about the old men and old women? All here is speaking of, if you will, all types, ages, stations. Slave and free, male and female, son and dad, all, young and elderly. Unless you're prepared to say that, in fact, literally, all people are prophesying on the whole of the earth, you already believe in prophetic hyperbole. You already believe in it. Now, there's certainly, there is certainly a more broad and universal application of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant Age. Of that, we have to be quite clear. 
In the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was like a pent-up river, to steal the language of B.B. Warfield, like a pent-up river that trickled into Jerusalem. In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is poured out in full force from the heart of Christ, and the waters of the Holy Spirit fill the whole earth with the glory of Christ. But this does not mean that every individual in the new covenant church is born again and believing. In fact, in the new covenant, there are those among us who are not of us. There are warnings about unbelievers in the new covenant church who will be weeded out of the kingdom of God in the end. There are warnings to the brothers, even holy brothers, that they should take heed lest there be in any of them, holy brothers, an evil, unbelieving heart. There are warnings to those who have been sanctified by Christ's blood, set apart, consecrated. Warnings that they not be unbelieving and so fall under judgment. Hebrews warns us that God, catch the phrase, God will judge his people. Not people who are not his people. His people, and that it's a fearful thing for his people to fall in the hands of a living God. Finally, look at Hebrews 8.12. Hebrews 8.12. Go back there. We'll wrap it up. I appreciate your patience as I'm considerably over time. Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Listen, this does not mean that the Old Testament saints were not forgiven their sins, nor that God failed to show mercy in the Old Covenant. They had a sacrificial system to demonstrate God's mercy and forgiveness. It means that their atonement, their atonement was not accomplished in that covenant administration. Was not accomplished in the Mosaic covenant. The atonement for our sins was accomplished by Christ in the new covenant. The new covenant. The old covenant gave us typical and shadowy sacrifices of atonement for sin, but Christ, who is the new covenant, Isaiah 42, is the antitype, the fulfillment. It's not that this work of the new covenant, the work of Christ, was not being applied in and through the old covenant. It's that this salvation was accomplished. Now hear this. The grace they received, they received by virtue of Christ's new covenant blood. Abraham was saved by Christ's new covenant blood. Moses was saved by Christ's new covenant blood. David was saved by Christ's new covenant blood. And that blood of Christ was being administered beforehand, served beforehand to Old Testament saints in and through types and shadows. So how are the new covenant promises better than the old? Well, because the new covenant is the administration of God's one covenant that is not typical and shadowy. It's the administration that you see full formed in Christ. The new covenant administration promises us the fulfillment. The fulfillment. The old covenant saints had Christ and all his blessings through faith and by the Spirit, but they did not live to see the Christ come. They did not live to see the Holy Spirit poured out. They had types and shadows. We have the fulfillment. That's why a man born, if you will, into the kingdom of God in Christ in the new covenant is greater, the least of us is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? You know you're not godlier than John the Baptist. How can that be? How can it be greater than him? Because you live to see the day that all the promises found their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He didn't. We know, though, from Hebrews 11, that the Old Testament saints had the substance of Christ by faith. I'm not just making that up. Now, faith, this is speaking about the Old Testament saints looking forward to Christ. Now, faith is the hypostasis. You don't know what that Greek word is? Substance. Faith is the substance of things not seen. 
And if you go through Hebrews 11, it's clear the thing they have not seen is the Christ in his incarnation and his life and death and resurrection. But by faith, they had the substance. He was theirs. And what did they fail to see? What did they fail to see? Why did they walk by faith and not by sight with regard to? Christ's incarnate work in the new covenant. They did not have the historical fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But they had everything promised in that fulfillment. In and through those typical and shadowy covenants God made with them. By virtue of the work of Christ. Being applied to them beforehand. How can that be? Matt asked me a great question last week. He said... If I'm a gardener, and I promise you, in one month I'll cut your lawn, and you know I'm 100% good for my word, that I'm going to cut your lawn in a month, the promise to cut your lawn doesn't make your lawn cut. Your lawn isn't cut until I come in a month and cut your lawn. And I said, that's right, Matt. But you are not the eternal gardener who cut my lawn before the foundation of the world. And that's a pretty stark distinction. Jesus is the Lamb of God who did what? He saved us before the foundation of the world. Forgiveness and mercy were given to Old Testament saints. Psalm 51, 1 through 2. God taught Old Testament saints in the heart by the Spirit. Psalm 51, 6. I'm just picking them out of Psalm 51. I could have picked a lot of others. Men were born again in the Old Testament, had the law written on their hearts, Psalm 51.10. And if you want the exact phrase, the law is written on their hearts, Psalm 37.31. So what is my point in all this? Christ is and always has been the substance of the covenants of promise in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, to quote Hebrews one last time, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is good news indeed. Now next week we'll be considering the people in God's covenant in the Old Testament and New Testament. And here's the point at which what we'll be asking. Are believers and their children members of the covenant or are believers alone members of the covenant? That's what I'll be looking at next week. Let me pray. Father, we ask for the help of your spirit to understand your word. We recognize that these eternal realities of the decree of God to send Christ as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to save us in history, to unfold that in a variety of covenants and to bring it to full fruition in the incarnation of your son and the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. It's It's too much for us to comprehend. May you help us get hold of just a piece of the garment of your unfolding promise and its accomplishment in Christ. May we rejoice in him and be thankful. May we know that you are and always have been the God of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.